So if you have Bibles with you, open up to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. I'm going to begin a new series of messages uh, today on the Beatitudes. Last week I completed a series of four messages on the topic of freedom. We took a we took a pretty in-depth look at Galatians chapter 5, where Paul writes to the, to the church and says, it's for freedom that Christ has set you free. Stand firm then and do not uh, let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. And so if, um, th- I thought it was pretty good. It was certainly in my heart. And if you're interested in listening to those, you can go to our church website, thebridgelongisland.com. Made a couple of little changes the, the hosting company that we use for our website, they're constantly adding little updates and upgrades, and so I was able to change the video page a little bit. So now it kind of looks like when you, when you uh, go to the sermon page and then there's the whole list of sermons, the videos are there as well. And I've got videos from about five different speakers that I think are um, uh, inspirational, that challenge me, and, and some that we've talked about here before. So there's a video page. You can check that out on the website. Updated that this week. And so what I want to do today is I want to take a look at the, the Beatitudes, a little bit of a background on the Beatitudes. I want to set the scene biblically, and then we want to take a look at, at the first Beatitude. And so we'll, we'll do this series for the, for the next few weeks, unless the Holy Spirit shows up and wants to edit something. He's allowed to do that. I'm totally cool with that. So, Matthew chapter 5, if you follow along, beginning of verse 1. This is Jesus speaking. He says, now when he saw the crowds, he went up, on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and began to teach them, saying, Blessed are you, poor in spirit, for the kingdom, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. And in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So Lord, I thank you for your word, for the truth and the power that's in your word. I pray that you would open our eyes, that you would open our hearts and our minds today, to let your word have its full impact upon us. Do it, Lord. I ask that you would change us, and in changing us, make us to be more like Jesus. Amen? Okay, so a little bit of background on the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes are the introductory section of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, covering the Gospel of Matthew chapters 5 through 7. And the Sermon on the Mount has long been hailed as the sum of Jesus' ethical teaching. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells us how to live. It's been said that if you look at all the good advice for how to live, ever uttered by any philosopher or psychiatrist or counselor, took out all the foolishness and boiled it down to the real essentials, 
you would be left with a poor imitation of this great message by Jesus. The Sermon on the Mount is sometimes thought of as Jesus' declaration of the kingdom. The American revolutionaries had their declaration of independence. Karl Marx had his communist manifesto. Jesus has uh, the Beatitudes or his Sermon on the Mount. So with this message, Jesus declares what his kingdom is all about. It presents a radically different agenda than what the nation of Israel had expected from their Messiah. It does not present the political or material blessings of the Messiah's reign. This message, this great message, tells us how we will live when Jesus is our king, when Jesus is the Lord of our lives. The Sermon on the Mount does not deal with salvation as such, but it lays out for the disciple and for the potential disciple how regarding Jesus' kingdom translates into ethical daily living. Now, I can't prove it, but I wonder if the Sermon on the Mount was one of Jesus' standard sermons. And what I mean by that is this. Over the years, different churches I've pastored, I'd have guest speakers come in. And when those speakers would come in, sometimes I'd known them well. I'd listened to lots of things they'd shared in the past. And they would come and they would have standard messages that they would share. They'd shared them other places. And even for some, they would feel like this is the message that God's given them to speak to churches for that year or for that season. And so, and some of you guys have probably experienced it as well. You hear someone speak or you listen to a tape of theirs and then you see them in person and they have the same message. So it's not uncommon for people who speak publicly for a living to have a standard message. Ministers do that. Certainly politicians, they call it a stump speech, right? They go from location to location and everywhere they go, they got the same standard message. I can't prove this, but I wonder if this, because of the significance of it, the weightiness of it, the foundation that it lays, if this was one of Jesus' standard messages, that he would go from place to place and, and this is what he would speak, it, it seems to be the core of his message. It's a simple proclamation of how God expects us to live. Anyway, just a, a question to ponder. Either way, it's clear that the Sermon on the Mount had a significant impact on the early church. The early Christians make constant references to it. And their lives display the characteristics of radical disciples. So let's, let's set the scene biblically. We're in Matthew chapter 5. If it, Going back to Matthew chapter 3, we see... John the Baptist is preparing the way. Let's just set the scene a little bit. He's, he's preaching a message of repentance and proclaiming that the kingdom of God is near. Jesus is baptized by John. In verse 16 of chapter 3, we see that the heavens open and the Spirit of God descends on Jesus like a dove. And the audible voice of God is heard. He says, this is my son, whom I love, 
In him I'm well pleased. I love that verse. Jesus gets baptized. The Spirit comes down like a dove. And the Father audibly speaks. And this is what he said. This is my Son, in whom I love. With him I'm well pleased. Every time I read that verse, this is what I think about. Jesus hadn't done anything yet. As Americans, <laughs> we have such a task-oriented orientated mindset to our faith. You know, we're good Christians if we perform certain tasks. I was talking to a friend not long ago, and, and they were saying to me how they don't have much of an appetite for all the thing, all the disciplines that they followed earlier on in their Christian walk. Um, they, they just don't seem to have life on it right now. And I remembered um, some of my things I've taught them in the past about go where the life is. You guys have heard me say that, right? Go where the life is. Well, what happens when the five or six things that you normally do, that you associate, the different tasks that you associate with being a Christian, you can't find life on any of those things. And my challenge was this. I said, what if the Father wants a relationship with you that's not task-orientated? What if he just wants to be with you? And it's not how well you play your guitar that day, or it's not how many chapters of the Bible you read that day. All, all the good things, right? What if it's just being together and not doing together? That's what I love about this verse here in chapter 3, verse 16. This is what the Father says about Jesus. This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Jesus hadn't done anything yet. He hadn't preached any messages. He hadn't healed the sick. He hasn't raised the, raised the dead. He hadn't multiplied food. He'd done nothing. Nothing. But the Father's pleasure is on him. The Father publicly announces, the audible voice of God comes and says, I love him. Why? Not because of what he'd done, but because of the relationship. He didn't say, this is my servant who I'm, whom I love and whom I'm well pleased. He didn't say, this is the Messiah Who's, he hadn't gone to the cross yet. <laughs> he hadn't suffered. He hadn't been whipped. He hadn't been crucified. He hadn't raised from the dead yet. The Father's love and pleasure was based on this. The first words he says, this is my son. It's relational. It's not task-oriented. And in that, in that place of relationship between father and son, there's great love. The Father's great love and the Father's great pleasure. And that's how he feels about you. He loves you because he was made to love, and he made you to be loved. He loves you because he's your father, <laughs> and you're his son and his daughter. Whether you can perform or not perform. I, I tried to use this example with my, with my friend. I said, what if some horrific accident took place with, with a loved one that you had, and they couldn't perform anymore? They couldn't take out the trash or clean their room or go to work. Would you still love them? Would your love for them change at all if they couldn't perform all the tasks that you normally and even justifiably expect them to perform? Would you still love them? And the woman looked at me and she was like, of course I would still love them. That's how God looks at us. His love for us isn't based upon how well we jump through the hoops that the church has created for us to jump through. God didn't come so we would have a task-orientated relationship. He, had a, he came that we would have a love-orientated relationship with him. And it's established from the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. The father speaking to his son, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. 
whom I love. It was on the basis of relationship and not on the basis of performance. Now, none of that was in my notes. That was a freebie. I love that verse, verse 17 of Matthew 3. But again, setting the stage, we go on to Matthew 4, and Jesus is led by the Spirit, the Scripture says, into the desert to be tempted by the devil. Anybody here ever had a desert experience? You ever been in that wilderness place? You ever think that sometimes you're there, not because you've done something wrong, not because you're being punished? Jesus never did anything wrong. He was sinless, right? The Father just expressed his great love to him, his great pleasure in him. And then the Word of God goes on to say that he's led by the Spirit into the desert. Sometimes it's the Spirit who leads us into those dark places, those wilderness places. Or as St. John of the Cross would refer to it as the dark night of the soul. The dark night of the soul isn't punishment. The dark night of the soul isn't consequences. Sometimes it's divine appointment. It's just a process. It's just part of the journey. To get you from here to where he wants you to go, there's a desert in between. And it's necessary to walk through it. So after resisting the devil in Matthew chapter 4, he resists him three times. Jesus comes out of the, the desert after his 40 days, and he preached. And he carried on where John the Baptist had let off. He said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. And he began calling disciples, starting with Peter and Andrew, James and John, and told them, come follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. Verse 23 to 25 says that Jesus healed the sick. Jesus proclaimed the message of the kingdom, and then he demonstrated the power and the reality of his kingdom by healing every disease among the people, all who were ill with various diseases, those who suffered with severe pain, the scripture says, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, paralyzed, he healed them all. And as a result, large crowds throughout the region followed him. And this brings us to chapter 5. Jesus starts his ministry, he gets baptized, he goes through this wilderness experience, he preaches the message of the kingdom, he demonstrates the power of the kingdom, and now there's a crowd. There's a whole bunch of people here. There's a whole bunch of people following him. And now he's going to give them this significant message, this proclamation of the kingdom, this core message of, of his. I love how um, the message, uh, Peterson's paraphrase of scripture. I like how it describes verses 1 and 2 in chapter 5. It says, when Jesus saw um, his ministry drawing huge crowds, he climbed the hillside. Those who were apprenticed to him, the committed, climbed with him. Arriving at a quiet place, he sat down and taught his climbing companions. This is what he said. I like that it said he sat down and taught, because I like to sit down and teach. I do. I want to be like Jesus. <laughs> Actually, Nadine and I did house church for so many years, um, I got into the habit of preaching sitting on the couch. And we did that for years, and then later on we got into more of a traditional look at church building, and it's like, if I stand up to preach, it's like, I don't know what to do with these legs of mine, you know? So I do better sitting down. 
Well, I like that. That was the, in Jesus' day, that was the customary posture of a teacher, is that he would sit. Any rabbi in his day, the preacher sat, and the audience stood up. I'm going to let you guys sit today. <laughs> so I'd like to take a look at the Beatitudes <laughs> from this position, from the, take this angle on it that the Beatitudes represent the character of kingdom citizens. The Beatitudes represent the character of citizens or citizenship in God's kingdom. The first portion of the Sermon on the Mount is known as the Beatitudes. In the Beatitudes, Jesus sets forth both the nature and aspirations of citizens of his kingdom. We here at the bridge, we have and we are learning these character traits. And all of these character traits are marks and goals of the Christian life. It's really not as if you can major in one of the Beatitudes to the exclusion of the others. <laughs> as in the case of spiritual gifts. Many people... The Beatitudes are different than giftings. Some of us, we have spiritual gifts and we're able to find great strength in maybe one gift or maybe a, a clumping of gifts, and, and maybe we don't really see the others uh, operating in our life. Like a musician, right? They can play the guitar really well. That might be one gifting, but maybe they can't play drums or they don't know how to play keyboard, but they do have real gifting in that one area. That's kind of how spiritual gifts work. The Beatitudes, it's more, um, it's more of the whole. and It's really hard to major in one and be completely deficient in another. It kinda, the whole water level rises together. I've heard it said that if you meet one who claims to be a Christian but displays and desires none of these traits in the Beatitudes, you may rightly wonder about their salvation because they do not have the character of kingdom citizenship. But if they claim to have mastered all of these attributes, you might want to question their honesty. <laughs> the word beatitude itself comes from the Latin, Latin beatitudo, meaning happiness. Beatitude means the blessings, but it can also be understood as giving the believer his be attitudes, the attitudes he should be. It reminds you of a title of a book written years ago by Robert Shula. It was 1995. He wrote the book based on the Beatitudes, and he called them the Be Happy Attitudes. That's a pretty good take on, on what the word Beatitude means. There are two Greek words primarily translated blessed. One means to be happy or to be blessed. And it's talking about a blessing, a happiness that comes from the inside out. From an, it's an internal condition. It means much more than being externally comfortable, or it means much more than being entertained in the moment. It's internal, and it's not subject to the external circumstances of life. The, the Beatitudes, it's referring to something that's going on on the inside of you, regardless of what's going on on the outside of you. The other word for blessed means to consecrate. 
It means uh, to consecrate a thing with solemn prayers and to ask God for his blessing on a thing. And now that's the opposite. That's from the outside coming in. It's like praying over our food before we eat or praying for a friend. You're asking for God to bless them. And that's for a blessing that comes from the outside going into them. But the Beatitudes, it's not the outside in. It's talking about a blessing from the inside out, from his spirit dwelling within us. So with that as an introduction, let's take a look at the first Beatitude. Let me share with you a few different translations. When I do Bible study, one of the things I like to do is I, I have a handful of translations I like to, to read through. It's, um, it's easy, and it's a simple form of Bible study. If you have a computer, you can go to websites like BibleGateway.com or Blue Letter Bible, and there's a whole vast array of translations. I have, a, I have a vast library of books. I probably own 20 different translations of the Bible from some form, fashion, or another. But online, you just click a button, boom, 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 you can go to all of them. And so sometimes when i first beginning a study on a text, what I like to do is I'll read through a few different translations. The ones that I like to read through, the ones I'll go to first, for just reading scripture, I'll, I'll use the New International Version. If I want to see you know, a more outside-the-box take on things, I'll read the message from Peterson. The Amplified is always another really good one to go to. And it really kind of does that. It just expands the meaning of the word and gives you a full understanding of what's being said. So as we start taking a look at the first beatitude, uh, let me read it to you from a few different translations. The NIV says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Peterson's message says, You're blessed when you're at the end of your rope. With less of you, there is more of God and his rule. Boy, that's pretty different than NIV's take on it. But it speaks to me in a new way. Anybody else ever been at the end of your rope? Right? That's, that's what it means to be poor in spirit? Hmm. Gets me thinking. You're blessed when you're at the end of your rope. With less of you, there's more of God in his rule. Amplified Bible. Blessed, happy, to be envied, and spiritually prosperous with life, joy, and satisfaction in God's favor and salvation, regardless of the outward condition of the poor in spirit, the humble, who rate themselves insignificant, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, for those of you who like to study, who like to dig deeper, can you see just reading those three different translations? There's all kind of points you could launch off into in, in doing research and, and study into it. The next thing I, I like to do is I take a look at Strong's Concordance. Classic. Gives great definitions for, for key words. And so after I've read a few different translations, now I want to go to some of the key words in the verse and see what what I can glean from that. And the strong concordance, uh, uh, key word here is poor, right? If I want to understand the, the first beatitude, I have to know what the word poor is referencing. And here, there's a few different definitions. It says a beggar, from the root word to crouch, as a beggar making, uh, asking for alms, asking for, for help. It means to be helpless or powerless to accomplish something in and of ourselves. Hmm, now I'm starting to think. I'm starting to make connections in my brain between what the Father proclaimed over Jesus at his baptism and how it's on the basis of relationship 
and not on the basis of past. Because what we're talking about here is someone who's powerless and someone who's helpless. We have much lower expectations of that person, don't we? And the scripture's saying that it's blessed is the person who's poor in spirit. Strong's goes on to say concerning poor, with respect to their, to their spirit, it says, one who is destitute of wealth, of learning, and intellectual culture, which the schools afford. Men of this class, most readily give themselves up to Christ's teaching and prove themselves fitted to lay hold of the heavenly treasure. It denotes the humility as referenced in the Amplified Bible. That's poor. Another key word in this text is spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. And what's meant here is the Holy Spirit, referring to breath or wind, the third person of the Trinity. Or the spirit of a person. It's interesting to note that here Jesus uses the word pneuma, spirit, meaning our conscience, that place of communion with God, wisdom, as, the, as opposed to the word suke, which would be the soul, which would be our own mind, will, and emotions. The kingdom is spirit and not soulish. And it belongs to those who are humble in spirit. So, if we have the Spirit of God on us, if we have great measures of the Spirit of God on us, if the Spirit of God is working mightily and powerfully through us, then one of the true signs is the Spirit, <laughs> if I'm understanding this, would be humility. No? Hmm. So blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom. And the kingdom here is referring to Royal power, dominion, and rule. The territory that is subject to the rule of a king. Here in the New Testament, it refers to the reign of the Messiah. And when it uses the word heaven, it's speaking about the seat of order, of things eternal, and consummately perfect, where God and other heavenly beings dwell. So here, we have the condition to be poor in spirit. It's the first characteristic of kingdom citizenship. So let me tell you what I believe being what poverty in spirit is not. Being poor in spirit is not man's con confession that he is by nature insignificant or personally without value. This is not saying that. Because that would be untrue. Scripture says that we're fearfully and wonderfully made. That we're created in the likeness of God. And that we're the objects of his extravagant love. So we can't be worthless. Right? We can't be of no value. We were of enough value to him that Jesus came and gave his life for us. We are priceless and precious. The Heavenly Father looks at us in the same way that we would look at our children. Right? I, I'll never forget the day I first laid eyes on our firstborn. The, I just exploded with love for her. Right? If somebody were to try and convince me in that moment that she was worthless, I'd taken them down. You know? <laughs> of course we're not worthless. Of course we're not a little value. 
I was, there was a story online this week that said scientists were doing new studies, and even with all their search for extraterrestrial life somewhere in the universe, they said that it's possible that we are the only life, the only intelligent life at this level of, of um, uh, development anywhere in all the universe. That was astounding. That's incredible. That God would create all of this just for us so that we could dwell in it. Wow. That doesn't sound worthless. That sounds priceless beyond priceless to me. That would, that would denote his incredible extravagance. Okay. So even if there is life out there somewhere else, I, I, I'm thinking that's at least a possibility. But they are so far away that we've never found them yet. And that still speaks of an amazing extravagance of his incredible love for us. We're not worthless. Poverty in spirit doesn't mean that you're worthless. Poverty of spirit is not self-hatred. And poverty of spirit cannot be artificially induced by self-hatred. Poverty of spirit is an acknowledgement, a recognition that we, in our nature, are sinful and rebellious and utterly without moral virtue in and of ourselves. Let me say it another way. That being poor in spirit is recognizing that we have no spiritual assets. We know and admit that we are spiritually bankrupt in and of ourselves. When I came to God, I brought nothing to the table. It wasn't like, well, okay, let's negotiate a partnership. I, I recognize that you bring 60% of the table, but hey, I'm bringing 40% of the table, and we'll work out a deal. You know, it's like we came to the negotiating table, and I'm bankrupt. I have nothing, he has everything. And he says, I want to make you mine, and all that I have is yours. Wow, that's a pretty good deal. Being, having poverty in spirit, being poor in spirit, is recognizing that we come to the table with nothing. And all we offer him is us, and he offers us him. That's a good deal. Apart from him, John 15, 5 says we can do nothing, right? Calvin, John Calvin describes poverty in spirit as, being in, as an inward humility and being emptied of the confidence of the flesh. With the word poor, Jesus uses the more severe term of poverty. It indicates someone who must beg for whatever, he want, whatever uh, they have or get. And they're at the mercy of of the giver. We're at the mercy of the great giver. Poverty of spirit is brought about by the Holy Spirit and our response to his working in our hearts. So I believe that being poor in spirit, it means that the humble in spirit have an accurate assessment of themselves. We know who we are in Christ, and we know who we are apart from Christ. Unlike our Laodicean brethren, 
in Revelation chapter 3, where it says, The angel of the church of Laodicea to the angel of the church of Laodicea write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful, the true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you're neither hot nor cold. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are neither so because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say I'm rich, I've acquired wealth, and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, so you can become rich, and white clothes to wear, so you can cover your shameful nakedness, and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love I rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I come in and eat with him, and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I have overcome and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear to hear, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. May we never be lukewarm. May we never be so blind <laughs> and miss it so badly. Humility will keep, um, will keep us out of that mess. And if we find ourselves in a mess, humility gets us out of it. To be poor in spirit, the call to be poor in spirit is placed first for a reason. It puts the following commands in perspective. It can't be fulfilled by our own strength, but only by a beggar's reliance on the power of God. Do you see that? And it's not so much saying that we have the outward appearance or that we have to be, in some sense, beaten down or completely crushed or defeated like we might experience you know, in a subway, someone who's in that low state where they're begging. But the mindset coming before God, that level of humility that says, I'm powerless without you. I'm bankrupt without you. All we have, all he has is ours. It's all welcome to us. But to, but to be poor in spirit, to be blessed for being poor in spirit, is to have that mindset that in and of myself, I have nothing good to offer. We have a beggar's reliance on God's great power. And what's the blessing? The blessing is the kingdom of heaven. Those who are poor in spirit, so poor that they must beg, they're rewarded. They receive the kingdom of heaven. Poverty of spirit is an absolute prerequisite for receiving the kingdom of heaven. As long as we harbor some illusion about our own spiritual resources like the Laodiceans, I'm rich, <laughs> right? We'll never receive from God what we absolutely need. The kingdom of heaven is God's dynamic rule in his reign. It's his assertive authority over the enemy. And his kingdom is not like our kingdom. It's not like the kingdoms of the world. His ways are not our ways. And his kingdom, the first, will be last. And the last will be first. It's a different kingdom. 
And his kingdom, the greatest, is servant of all. And to lose your life is to save it. In his kingdom, the exalted are humbled, and the humbled are exalted. And in his kingdom, the meek inherit the earth. In his kingdom, fishermen and tax collectors become apostles. <laughs> in his kingdom, Pharisees are whitewashed tombs filled with dead men's bones. The poor receive his kingdom. It's a strange kingdom where his ways are not our ways. I'm almost done. Let me just read you a couple of commentaries, some great commentaries available if you do personal study. Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown, Wesley's Notes on the Bible, Matthew Poole's commentary, John Piper has works out there. Just let me read a few of these to you. Let you know what some great minds have said about these powerful verses. Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown, it says, So the poor in spirit are enriched with the fullness of Christ, which is the kingdom in substance. And when he shall say to them from his great white throne, Come ye blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you, he will invite them merely to the full enjoyment of an already possessed inheritance. John Wesley writes of the kingdom of heaven is that it's the present inward kingdom. Righteous, peace, joy in the Holy Spirit as well as the eternal kingdom. Matthew Poole writes, that not the great and rich and proud men of the world are happy, but there are blessed men. For true happiness lies not in worldly possessions, but in the favor of God and a right to the kingdom of heaven that these men have. Piper says, I think Jesus means to tell us that these six promises are blessings of the kingdom. In other words, these six things are what you can count on when you're part of God's kingdom. This is what the kingdom brings, comfort, earth ownership, satisfied righteousness, mercy, a vision of God, and an awesome title, son of God. You don't have to pick and choose among these promises. They all belong to the kingdom. So there's a blessing from God, an internal, internal blessing, God's dynamic rule and reign, his kingdom, the kingdom of God within you, it says in Luke 17, 21. For those who have a humble and honest assessment of themselves. This is the first characteristic of kingdom citizenship. Poverty of spirit is the first sign of kingdom character. Next week we'll take a look at the next beatitude, blessed are those who mourn, for they'll be comforted. So, let's pray. Lord, I feel like this first beatitude is foundational. And I pray that you would um, work in our hearts and our minds in this very moment, that we'd get this right. That it would not be some type of religious self-hatred that we view ourselves with but just the opposite. That we would see ourselves as the object of your extravagant affection. That we would see you as the possessor of all that there is. That you have all the resources. That you have everything in overwhelming abundance that we could ever need to live 
as citizens in your kingdom. And we come to you, oh God, bankrupt in spirit. We come to you, oh God, knowing that in and of ourselves, the only good that we have is the good that you put in us. And we offer you our lives. We come humbly before you with an honest assessment, a humble assessment of who we are before you. And we thank you that your love for us is the love that you have for Jesus. That we are your sons and your daughters in whom you're well pleased. Whom you love. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Bless your name, O oh God. So I'd like to pray for people today. Lord, what do you want to do? What do you want to do, Lord? Is there anybody here today who has um, physical needs? There's something physically that you're wrestling with and you need healing. You need healing in your body. Yeah? Yeah, if you guys would, would come forward, I want to be able to pray for you guys today. Anybody else? Any anything in your body? Any kind of physical ailment? We can pray for. Sean, I don't know if we could play any music, but if you got something there you want to put on, that'd be great. <laughs> 